Hello, everybody, and welcome to JTV. And I'm really, really excited for this episode. Uh, before I introduce my guest, just a, a bit of background on the new term we've tried to take with JTV recently. I was saying on, on a recent video that this battle that Israel's facing, that the world is facing, it's not, it's not just a battle with, with Hamas. This goes far deeper. We've seen in the last few days that many of the world's great institutions have found ways to defend or justify or make equivalences between Hamas and Israel and to justify what they did. This is not a Hamas problem. This is a world problem. It goes deeper than just Hamas. It's clear that the world is morally lost. We have seen the great secular institutions like universities. In the media, the great revered BBC in this country, sports culture, celebrities and even in religious communities. And of course, we saw Hamas, which has created a perverse form of religion. Um, they have failed, failed to, 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 to side with, with good and to stand up for what's right. I think the truth is staring us in the face like never before. And it's hard to deny this truth. And even among Israel's friends, Many of them don't seem to have a great sense of what's right or wrong. So they'll stand up and say, Israel's the right to defend herself. But the second it starts to get a little bit uh, messy, they back away or they start, to, they start to become unsure. There's no serious institution that's teaching morality. And so the message that we've been saying on JTV is, it's time for the Jewish people to step up. We need to. The solution has to be teaching Torah and morality and goodness as the fundamental solution to all this. And so therefore, to start this new series, I cannot think of anyone better to start with than Dennis Prager. And the reason I say that is because Dennis has, who, by the way, he's been on JTV a few times before. And if you're not familiar with him, though I'm sure most of our audience are, Dennis is a... a an American but really global um, writer, teacher, radio host. And um, he's a man who understood this long ago. He was onto this way before we caught up with it. He has devoted his life to teaching about morality, but God's morality, the Torah's morality and, and goodness. And he's done it not just to a small part of the community. His focus has been the entire world. And most recently, he's uh, been uh, publishing his com own commentary on the Torah called The Rational Bible to make Torah values accessible to the world. Highly recommend you check it out. It's superb. But um, Dennis, first of all, thank you for making the time to be on JTV. Um, I don't know if you have any reflections on what I just said there, but we really are so grateful for you, for you to make the time in your busy schedule to be here today. It's a joy to be with you again, Ali. Thank you for wearing uh, the Los Angeles shirt in my honor. I'm, I'm in LA, obviously, where I live. So uh, I, I could spend the entire time we have just commenting on your opening comments. Uh, as you well know, I'll be brief. Yes, you're right. I, I have devoted my life uh, to uh, the issue of good and evil and the incredibly important nothing is nearly as important as making good people it is not easy to make good people as history has proven 
and that is because uh, the will of man's heart is towards bad from its from his youth, as it says in Genesis. One of the most foolish doctrines of the last couple of hundred years, beginning with Rousseau and the Enlightenment, is that people are basically good, which is so obviously foolish that it, it's amazing that we call the age ushered in by the French Enlightenment the age of reason, because there's no more irrational belief than human nature is basically good. I'm, I'm not saying it's basically evil, but it's it's just not basically good. The most important thing we can do is make good people. And the greatest vehicle that I know of is the Ten Commandments, as I uh, say all over the world. Uh, all we need really is for people to live by the Ten Commandments, and the world would turn into a, a heavenly place. That's all. That's really all we need. But you have to also, this is really important though, you have to also posit that the Ten Commandments come from God. E even if you're an agnostic, you have to posit that because otherwise it's just 10 suggestions and it doesn't work. So I, I'll give one little example. I don't, I don't think that this is as big a problem um, in, in, uh, in the UK or probably uh, perhaps any country like it is in the United States. There's a pandemic, as I call it, of cruelty of adult children who have uh, chosen not to speak to their parents because often because they differ with them politically, philosophically, etc. I mean, sometimes there are personal reasons and on rare occasions it's warranted, but it's rare. And uh, the answer to that is that there is a commandment, honor your father and mother. And we're not asked to love our parents. We're asked to love the stranger, love our neighbor, love God, but not love our parents. We just have to honor them, whether we love them or not. And people who think that will speak to their parents. They won't act as if they're dead in their lives. The, the, the examples, of course, are legion, whether it's murder or, or theft. Uh, hundreds of billions, uh, what, $100 billion is it? I don't remember the number in the United States just in the last few years in these staggering amount of robberies of stores in, in virtually every major city in the United States. Uh, the, these people drive up in their BMW and then rob the store. They're not starving. These people aren't stealing bread. They're stealing whatever the store sells. Hmm. So uh, the, the uh, I'll just end with this. The other foolish idea along with people are basically good and they go in tandem often, is the belief that God is not necessary uh, for an ethical society. Because people say, well, aren't there good atheists? Of course there are good atheists. No, I've never said otherwise. No, no one can deny. I mean, one, one is denying the obvious, but it's irrelevant. The society will crumble. The Western world uh, is, 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 is in, in moral chaos. In the United States, uh, if you say that men do not give birth, you can lose your job. Uh, in, in parts of Europe, uh, if you say that, you, you can actually be fined or even arrested. And likewise in Canada. We're living in the moral chaos that follows uh, the death of a, of a divine code.
So we, we are, as they say, in trouble. It's funny you, you say this, actually, because I was having this very discussion with a very popular TV presenter in the UK um, about morality. And she told me you know, she's, an, she's an atheist and she's like, you know, I don't, don't need it. And I thought, you know, what's interesting is that the very almost the very language that we use to define morality is so informed by by the Bible and the Ten Commandments without even realizing it. And uh, it just, you know, just look back at history and look at what societies occurred that weren't that before the Torah was introduced and look at societies that were informed by those values. And it kind of, it, t it tells you a lot, right? Um, I want to talk today on the issue of morality about morality when it comes to Israel fighting Hamas and fighting an enemy, because there's a lot of moral confusion there. And if we, if we don't have clarity here, when Israel is inevitably going to come under attack um, in the, you know, in, in the PR department, uh, then we're going to be we're going to be trouble. Or we're going to um, be in trouble or struggle uh, with, with with what to say. The first question I want to ask before we talk specifically about morality and war is this issue of Hasbara um, and which is activism in, in on Hebrew, for those who don't know, in terms of trying to defend Israel. Um, there were there was a huge protest outside the BBC a few days ago. I had friends and family that went to it. And a big part of me felt like it was a complete waste of time. I'm sure you're aware that they've refused to just call Hamas a terrorist organization in their, in their headlines. And I thought to myself, is screaming at them, having a big protest outside the BBC, going to change their minds? Because I felt like it was, it's so clear, it's so obvious, the truth is staring us in the face. I don't think it's that they can't understand. I think it's that they won't understand. I think they, th th there's clearly some uh, almost like sadistic pleasure they get in, in, in taunting Israel. Um, and I thought, you know, you don't scream at children, you, you, you discipline them or, you know, or maybe you walk away. And, and... But then I thought, on the other hand, maybe this isn't for the BBC per se, maybe it's for the general public and let them see this and let them be informed. Just wondered what, what your thoughts are, because we often hear, you know, oh, if Israel had better PR, that would be the solution. I'm not convinced. You know, the, tr Israel, the IDF actually doing a very good job on social media now. And the truth is so obvious that it's, I think it's, this goes deeper than an intellectual discussion. This is, you know, deep, deep moral issues. You need both. I mean, clearly, uh, as one who is in, involved in that, uh, my video explaining the Middle East has, I think, tens of millions of views. It came out 10 years ago. Israeli embassies use it. And vast numbers of people, thank God, have seen it. Prager University, the, the, the website and institution that I helped found. We have about 15 of our 600 five-minute videos are on the Middle East. Uh, if one watches those and still is anti-Israel, it is because one has opted uh, to ignore reason, history, truth, and is just a hater of Jews. We have a video of, of a black South African member of the South African parliament who lived under apartheid. And so he decided to go to Israel to see, is it true that Israel is an apartheid state? And he came back and he said, this is a gigantic lie. I lived under apartheid. 
all you're doing is cheapening the term apartheid by by saying Israel is. He he happened to have been hospitalized by sheer chance uh, while he was uh, visiting Israel, and he said, you know, next to me on one side was a Jew, and on the other side was an Arab. He said, do you think that was possible under apartheid? You think I could be in the same hospital room with a white? I mean, what are you, what are you talking about? And so that's that's a five minute video that should end all discussion of this 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 vile lie that Israel's an apartheid state. Uh, we have another one by actually a, a British a brigadier general, uh, Richard Kemp. He was the head of the British forces in Afghanistan. He's he's rather a high ranking army officer in the British army, and the name of the. Uh, video is Israel is uh, the Israeli army is the most moral army in the world. And, and this is a member of the British army saying this, because it is, it, it's the most moral army in the world. But when Jews are hated, it's not because they did wrong. Of course, the haters charge the Jews with wrong. The Nazis charge the Jews with a whole assortment of wrongs. Mm. But so it's all made up. In fact, as a collective, the Jews are hated by those who hate them and want to wipe them out, often because they're better. Israel has produced a better society than the surrounding Arab societies. Mm. They, Tel Aviv was a swamp when the Jews arrived there, a swamp, a malarial swamp. And look at it today. The Jews built it. This is not chauvinism. This is fact. So when Israel left uh, uh, Gaza, and they say, well, don't occupy us. So fine, so Israel decided to leave. And then what happened? When Israel signed the Oslo Accords, what happened? The same thing. More, more Jews were killed as a result of the Oslo Accords. And I supported the Oslo Accords, just for the record. I was wrong, but I did. Hmm. The Jews aren't hated because they do bad. Jews are hated largely because they do good, or really because they exist. But what I'm saying the, is that there's some people that are not worth saying these things to because they just it's clearly I don't want to stare reality well, in the face. The, well, there there is there is a virtue in in demonstrations. Just first of all, it's good for the demonstrators. For, if if our side has a demonstration, it's invigorating for those who attend it, even if it has no effect on any aspect of the of the larger society. So I. I, will they change the BBC's mind? I doubt it. I mean, look, anyone who cares for truth knows it wasn't an Israeli rocket, let alone intentional, but not even unintentional, that destroyed whatever was destroyed at that hospital in Gaza. It, we have the video of their own rocket falling there. <laughs> we have uh, Hamas... Uh, leaders or, or fighters talking to one another saying it was their own rocket. It, Israel is, has released that video, that recording. But yeah. it, so it doesn't matter. If truth governed the world, goodness would prevail. The road to evil is not money. The road to evil is lies. The amount of lies told about uh, Israel is what and the Jews generally is what enables all this all this evil. Yeah. So so let's talk about war morality now because this is so important that we maintain the morale in terms of the Israel's uh, cause being just. Um, 
first of all, even among friends and people who are make all kinds of you know comments on social media but they're very nervous and anxious here and i'm talking usually more typically among people who aren't so familiar with the conflict or non-israeli and people make these moral equivalences you know they say look there's problems on both sides and they're both sides are suffering so let's not take sides here and you know ultimately there's going to be innocent people so i'm not going to pick a side i pick the side of humanity what what's your response to people that say that would these people have said it? This is my take. Would these people have said it during World War II? Look at how many Germans are being killed. This this is a new uh, example of the moral confusion I spoke about in my opening comments. There wasn't such moral confusion during World War II. Nobody said, well, you know, more Germans have died than Brits, I'm talking about civilians. Uh, obviously, uh, Germany is in the right, or they're both wrong. Why didn't people say that? If the issue is the number of civilians who die, then Britain was wrong and Germany was right. Same with Japan. The United States was wrong. Far more, very few American civilians died. A vast number of Japanese civilians died. I guess America was wrong. The Japanese were right. So only here is it being applied. With, with regard to the Jews, it's not even worth saying Israelis because the enemies of Israel say the Jews all the time. They don't let them bother with, with the Israelis. So uh, this, this is a new way of assessing the moral nature of a war, how many civilians die. Not who caused it, who targets civilians. Those are irrelevant questions to the number counters. Yeah, and it's absurd. And, you know, you have these reporters, the second that Israel starts to uh, retaliate, retaliate in Gaza, oh, look at look at these explosions, look at these, this, you know, it's like, well, welcome to war. <laughs> it's just, it's the level of uh, moral thinking. They're either so deeply morally confused or just vicious anti-Semites, and I'm often not sure which one it is. And so you, you talk about this issue of proportionality. So when you have friends, even like Joe Biden, who says, you know, Israel, don't be consumed by rage. And, you know, they start bringing up issues of cutting off electricity and, you know, don't punish Gazans, all these things. It's disproportionate. What do you say? The poison of moral confusion has spread deeply in America and in the West. Israel wants to live... What is it, the line that Hamas used? Uh, oh, yes. We love death as much as the Jews love life. So it was a comment made repeatedly by various Hamas leaders. And that's the truth. It's it's a death cult, just like Nazism was. Order of, the, of Death's Head was one of the Nazi orders in the SS. The, the Torah has a great line I've put before you, life and death, choose life. Israel chooses life, including the lives of Palestinians. I mean, for example, the charge made by every pro-Palestinian liar, and it's, I'm sorry to say it's redundant, the pro-Palestinians just lie, that Israel is committing genocide. How is it then that there are far more Palestinians today than, than 10 years ago, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? 
This is the worst enacted genocide in the history of genocide. People do not increase their numbers when they are targets of genocide, but it doesn't matter. The people who make this charge don't make it because it's true. They make it because it invalidates Israel, and that's all that matters to them. Yeah. And it's also, you know, the other thing that gets missed is part of war morality and going to war is science for the sake of peace, the sanctity of life, all these values that, that Jewish people believe in. Um, I wonder if we could talk through some specifics in terms of from a Torah perspective. What comes first? Um, protecting one's own soldiers or you know innocent civilians on the enemy side there's sometimes there can be decisions to make um where, where does Torah lean well if by Torah you mean the five books of Moses which is what I mean when I speak of the Torah I'm literal Jews use the word Torah to mean anything really about Jewish law and Jewish teaching that includes the whole gigantic Talmud. I mean, when, when there's a debate in, in the Talmud, do you give to the poor of your own city first or the poor anywhere? And there's a famous Hebrew answer, the poor of your city come first. You have to take care of your own. What other country sends text messages to people to evacuate buildings that will be attacked, but thereby endangering their, their own cause, obviously, because surprise is more effective than announcements if you want to win a war. I remember going to Israel many years ago and I made a video Israel in a time of terror. I, I think it's on the internet. I, I, I don't know. But it, it's titled Israel in a Time of War. And I, I remember vividly entering a store where this young woman in a cosmetic store was, was so distraught because she knew Israeli soldiers who had died because they were trying to avoid killing Arab civilians. And that's true. That that just happens to be true. What is it? Golda Meir said it. This is nothing is new. She said something to the effect that when 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 they care about their children as much as we care about ours, or something to that effect, uh, then will be peace. See, people don't understand you hatred. They think it's not it's not of this world. It's the only exterminationist hatred. You know, there are so many nations that really dislike other nations. The Poles and the Germans have a terrible history. The, the, the Poles and the, and the Russians, the Ukrainians and, and, and the Russians and the, or Ukrainians and the Poles, uh, you know, the, the British and the Irish. It's all over the world. But nobody has an aim to exterminate the other group. The people who hate Jews want to exterminate the Jews, and it has always been the case. Jews say it at every Passover Seder. It's, the, the line is about 2,000 years old. In every generation, somebody arises to annihilate us. Annihilate. The Hebrew is annihilate, not even just kill, and certainly not persecute or even enslave. Annihilate. It's a unique 
hatred. For those interested, I wrote a book on this called Why the Jews. And it, it, I have it behind it was, me here. <laughs> I wrote it. Well, thank you. I wrote it 40 years ago, 40. And it's in the third edition, so things have been added. But one could read the first edition equally profitably. And it's explained the uniqueness of this hatred. The rabbis explained it brilliantly in, in a few lines. They said, the great hatred comes from Sinai. And it's a play on Hebrew. The word for hatred in Hebrew is Sinai. The word for Sinai is Sinai. They're spelled with different consonants, but they're pronounced virtually the same. The Sinai is from Sinai, where, what a sign again, the Ten Commandments. And there is a hatred for the Ten Commandments by those who hate the Jews. Would you agree with me that anti-Semitism is, anti is almost uh, like compelling evidence, proof for, for God and, and the, the Jewish people's chosenness, in a sense, their, their particular mission? Well, that's one of the most fundamental beliefs of my life. The hatred of the Jews comes from the worst people in any given gener generation. It's not like otherwise decent people hate the Jews. Evil focuses on the Jews first, never the Jews last, but the Jews first. So yes, in fact, it is about as compelling an argument for the Jewish chosenness as exists. Yeah. That's the irony of Jew hatred. It validates the chosenness of the Jews. Now, a lot of Jews might say, well, if that's the case, I don't want to be chosen to which I have no response. It's a very rational response. Let somebody else be chosen for a change. But it doesn't work that way. We are the chosen people. And uh, this is not a chauvinist claim. First of all, anyone could become a Jew. So it's clearly, it's not, it has no racial characteristic. There are Jews of every race, every ethnicity. And it was true from the beginning. A lot of non-Jews came out with the Jews. The Torah says it, Erev a big mixture of people came out with the Jews from, from Egypt. We have never been pure in that way. The Messiah will come from Ruth. Ruth, Ruth came from the Moabites. She, she was a convert to Judaism. She's not ethnically Jewish. The, the only spy aside from Joshua who, who gave a positive report about conquering Canaan was a Kenizzite. His ethnicity wasn't Jewish either. It, it was the Jews who said we can't conquer uh, Israel or Canaan. So there is no racial aspect to Jewish chosenness, but it, it, it's, it's essentially undeniable. The, the people who hate the Jews don't deny that the Jews are chosen. They hate the Jews for being chosen. The Japanese think they get the sun before any other country the land of the rising sun. China in Chinese means the middle kingdom, center of the world. Does anybody hate the Chinese or the Japanese for, for their uh, beliefs in, in their form of chosenness? No, because nobody believes it. Jews are hated for chosenness and they're the tiniest, among the tiniest peoples on earth because people know it's true. Yeah, and, and what's amazing is how much our, our enemies spell it out to us. You know, Hitler was crystal clear about this. I think even the fact that the Hamas chose Simchat Torah, like the day in which the Jewish people celebrate the Torah, like 
I think there's a message there. That that's who they're attacking. That's what what they're going after. Um, on, on this sort of similar topic of uh, the Jewish people and relationship with with history and and God and there's this, you know, this. A lot of people say that the ultimate context of this battle that Israel's facing is people challenging the Jewish people's right to the land. And I know there's all kinds of seriously compelling arguments that we can throw at, throw at the world. You know, the Jewish people's lo lo long-term historic connection with the land, being indigenous, um, the the international law and United Nations backing, which they set up, and even prior to that, you know, the 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 League of Nations and creating it under international law. Um, the fact that the Jewish people's right to self-determination and having a safe haven, all these arguments are really compelling. But it seems to me like the Bible is certainly trying to push the Jewish people to making the, the argument and, and, and what God wishes us to say, which is that this is the land he gave and decreed as creator of universe, creator of the world, to the Jewish people. And I often wonder sometimes if it's actually an argument that people who are certainly in the Muslim and Arab world may actually have a lot more respect for themselves being religious people. I wondered what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Among religious people, it might be an effective argument. Certainly vast numbers of Christians believe it, thank God, and especially American Christians. But I never use the argument because I, I don't invoke God as an argument on behalf of Israel. Israel is right if you're an atheist. Uh, even an atheist can understand the indigenous people to that area are the Jews. The Jews were there almost 2,000 years before Muhammad was born. There, there's never been a Palestinian, never been an Arab. There's never been a Muslim state in that area. There are 22 Arab states. Israel is, is the size of, of El Salvador. And, and the Arab world goes from the Atlantic Ocean to the Indian Ocean. And there's no room for this tiny little enclave of Jews. That's right. In fact, if, if when the Jews had half of the area, the Arabs around them tried to wipe them out in 1947-48. So it has nothing to do with occupation. It has nothing to do with the size. It has to do with the existence of an independent Jewish state, no matter how small, in the midst of the Muslim world. That's the entire battle. So in other words, you're saying the argument just that you focus on with people, and certainly people who are perhaps more secular, is just like in the inherent goodness and justice of, of Israel's cause. I yes, mean, I, I kind that's of, right. Just, right, right. In some ways, they're, they're somewhat synonymous with God, right, who is ultimately the ultimate goodness. Um, but, I, you know, I only asked this question just because I was reading you know, the Rashi, the first Rashi on the Torah, who was uh, a medieval Torah commentator, right. for those who aren't familiar, and he says that this is the argument. Genesis. Right. He yeah, says the argument right. is that you should make to the world is that God, God gave this land to us. Well, he lived in a very religious world, Rashi. You know, everybody around him was a Christian. He lived in France uh, in, in, in a thousand, almost a thousand years ago. So uh, you have to make arguments that work for the audience to whom you're speaking.
So people. But I'm talking specifically the Islamic world, the Muslim world. Yes. Yes. No. I said to you, I think that's correct. Yeah. That that's right. That that's. I don't know what their answer would be, given that they do acknowledge some f- source of holiness to the Torah. Uh, certainly, Muhammad believed that he he fasted on Yom Kippur till the Jews rejected him. How many people know that? He prayed wow. toward Jerusalem until the Jews rejected him, then changed it to Mecca. But what they say is that we have distorted our own scripture. Just Christians have dis- distorted their scripture, and the only valid one is the Quran. But nevertheless, it, it within a religious Muslim context, perhaps that argument uh, would would be received with some degree of uh, of interest. Making the yeah. argument to the world. Uh, I, I don't say God gave us the land because when you do that, you are sort of implying that without that, we don't have an argument, but we do a moral, historical, factual argument. Mm. Yeah, I suppose I'm just asking it also because I'm wondering if a new strategy needs to be employed, given the amount of... Uh... Uh, you know, hostility that Israel faces. Um, well, the the new strategy has to be the the return of the West to the Bible. Yeah, well, but that's Christian Zionists have always outnumbered Jewish Zionists. Uh, as a, as America becomes more secular, it becomes more anti-Israel. the The only large community in the United States that's pro-Israel is uh, is Christians. Yeah. But then again, that's going to mean having it's all part of the same thing, really, isn't it? Then it's going to mean have if we if we have this vision of a messianic world, it's going to mean we're going to have to speak to secular people and, and uh, atheists about uh, about God and, and perhaps try and convince them of these things. I, that's I correct. Your, well, that, that yes. Yeah, I, I wonder what your message is for for those who are in conservative circles in America who have adopted a far more isolationist approach they've become you know really demoralized by america um getting involved in conflicts around the world very concerned about america's domestic problems and thinking we you've got we've got to focus resources there so they just say in the case of the israel hamas issue we shouldn't be getting involved even even in funding and military support and this is not our problem we shouldn't get involved and then you get people who are even more extreme isolationists that just basically say it's all the military industrial complex and it just benefits people in power and you know war is always wrong and what what is your or mainly wrong what is your message to to, to those people the isolationists out there that say america mustn't get involved so i i was on a national another i do a national radio show and one of my colleagues uh, is sebastian gorka who was a an assistant to Donald Trump before his radio life. And and he had me on his show to talk about this. And I, he asked me the exact same thing. And I said to him, how could you be a religious Christian and say that you don't come ever to the aid of victims of, uh, of extermination or, or, massive war 
God blessed the United States with the greatest wealth of any country in history and the greatest strength. And we are only to use it if New York or San Francisco is bombed. That is the only time. We are the strongest country in the world and we're to help no one who is beleaguered. Nobody's arguing that we have to help everybody. It's not possible, but help nobody. This, this is a very uh, bad trend in the conservative world. The argument that we have a lot of problems in America is a non sequitur. We had a lot of problems in America when America gave up 37,000 Americans to fight to keep at least half of Korea free. If, if Israel is not in America's interest, why was Korea? I, I love asking these people this because they don't even know about the Korean War. 37,000 Americans were killed, and that was the early 50s. So population-wise, it'd be equivalent to, I don't know, at least 100,000 today. And, and that doesn't count the, the maimed and the wounded and the brain damage. But that was an America that believed that we do come to the aid of countries that are being trampled. That it was a better America. And I would think that conservatives who, especially those who say, make America great again, part of the greatness was that we cared about other countries. Hmm. Are you concerned about this, this shift occurring? Yeah, I am concerned. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, my expectations of humanity are very low. So I, I, I sort of more celebrate the existence of the decent than I lament the existence of the indecent. Okay, two, two final questions. Um, so you have a really famous video on PragerU about the Middle East conflict and saying you're, you have the famous line that it may be one of the hardest to solve, but it's the easiest to explain. And I wondered if just perhaps in light of what's been going on recently, if, if you could just spend a minute talking about that, because I think I don't need it. I don't it, need a minute. Uh, it's in that video. That's the one I made reference to. That's gone viral many times over many, many ten, tens of millions of people. Thank God. But I wish everybody saw it. Uh, and it's just one line summarizes it. And I repeat it about, I stated about three times in the five minute video, one side, wants the other side dead. And I end with a question. If Israel announced it's laying down its arms and will not fight, what will happen? And if the Palestinians say we will lay down our arms and not fight, what will happen? Well, in the first case, there would be massive uh, annihilation of the Jewish people. Of, of if, if Israel laid down its arms, the Jews of Israel would be massacred. If the Palestinians laid down their arms, there would be peace in a week. Do you think the the, the pro-Israel community is is ready yet to admit that the, the peace process has always been a sham? Some would and, and some have. The the average Israeli who yearns for peace 
if for no other reason than it's a citizen army and they don't want their sons and daughters dead. Uh, they, most Israelis understand that there's nobody to talk peace with. But people who, I, I, I've been for a two-state solution or two-state existence for many, many, most of my life. Not now. If Israel abandoned the West Bank, it would, it would become another Hamas, another Hezbollah. I mean, it's so obvious that you had to go to college to deny it. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines of yours. I often use it. I, I, I don't know if it was your, you uh, came up with a line of only an academic could say something so stupid. Yeah, that's my line. Brilliant. <laughs> I don't know if it's, I'm, I don't think I'm the only one who said it, but that, that's been my line for much of my life. I, since I was at Columbia University studying Arabic and Russian. That's, uh, yeah. I realized it then. Um, so my final question to you is, um, as I said at the start, you know, fundamentally, I do think that the Torah is optimistic about, about uh, humanity because it has the messianic vision. And um, I actually heard a really interesting talk uh, by Rabbi Manis Friedman, who I know you know well, um, who was speaking on this issue a few days ago, and he was talking about, you know, we're, we're reading the story of Noah, and he said, how could God promise he won't destroy the world again? How could he get, you know, if human beings can have an evil inclination, how can he be certain that they won't become so evil again? Is he just saying he'll just tolerate evil? And he said, no, one, after the flood, uh, he, God knew it, and Abraham was going to come, and that a, a Jewish people would arise, and, and there would be a terror, and therefore the world through that would be inspirable towards goodness. Um, and so what, what is one thing you would encourage of anyone watching this, Jew or non-Jew, one, one act of goodness, of morality, maybe a mitzvah um, that, that we, sh we should do in order to bring more goodness into the world? Teach your children that self-control is infinitely more important than self-esteem. Wow. Can you elaborate? Yeah. If you don't learn to control yourself, you'll, you won't be a good person. As I have said all of my life, I went to yeshiva till I was 19. I learned from probably third grade that the biggest problem in Dennis Prager's life is Dennis Prager. In secular schools in America, you learn that the biggest problem in your life is America. Wow, wow, wow. And if you don't have children yet? Get married and make children. <laughs> Love it. Brilliant. Dennis, it, it, it's, it's honestly one of the greatest honors to be able to have you on the on JTV and on this channel and to, to know you. you and spend time with you. You're, you're a hero. You're, you're a hero to the world. I've watched your content for a long time read all of your books if anyone isn't so familiar with dennis please check him out get his books look at his videos look at his speeches your speech at the oxford union you did it's very timely right now and it's doing the rounds again online where you speak about um hamas and israel and all these issues we've been speaking about please please research dennis content learn from him um because dennis is the solution to a lot of these uh, problems we've been talking about. Uh, Dennis, thank you so much for your time and I hope we'll be able to find other times to do this again in the future on JTV. 
with great joy, Ollie. Thank you. 